Good evening. Tonight is a Bible study night, and we are going to be dealing with a subject that many find to be controversial. I don't think it's controversial, I just think it's convicting. Uh, so we'll be looking at that. We had uh, a number of questions that have been asked as a result of uh, speaking on head covering in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And so I figured we'd have an evening when we just talk about that subject. All right, let me go through a, a, a little presentation here, and maybe some more questions or criticisms will come up as we go. Head covering, 1 Corinthians 11. I want to give you 10 theological reasons from this passage why a woman must wear a head covering when praying or prophesying. Now please look at your Bibles, because... There are many who say this is a cultural thing, all right? Now, my proposition to you is if this is proposition, then these 10 theological reasons don't mean anything. Because if it's cultural, then it wipes it off. But why? Because Paul gives you 10 reasons why, theological reasons, why a woman should cover her head uh, when she's praying or prophesying. If you come up and say, well, that's only cultural, then these reasons do not count. Do you understand what I'm saying? And it's very important for us to understand that. Ten reasons. And you, please look in your Bibles. First, man is the authoritative head of the woman. Verse 3 says, but there is one thing I want you to know. Now, understand this as well. Paul seems to be teaching these people these truths for the same time, uh, uh, for the first time. It appears to me... Not that there were women who were doing this in the assembly already. Now, many people take that position that the reason why Paul is writing this is because many women were praying and prophesying without their head covering. I take the opposite view. Because in verses 1 and 2, Paul commends them, if you read it, for doing what he told them to do. Isn't that right? Look at it. It says, I commend you for doing these things. All right? So it appears to me that they were doing it but didn't know exactly why. We have many believers like that, doing things and we don't know why we're doing it. And so Paul is explaining why these practices are necessary. There's one thing I want you to know. The head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. See, that's a whole different thing. Woman, man, that's gender here not husband or wife. Now, another part of the passage, they will be talking about husband and wife, but not here. The head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. That's reason number one, the headship of the man. Number two, this authoritative position must be symbolized, and we should put here, when praying or prophesying, by the wearing of a head covering by the woman, well, I have it here, whenever she prays or prophesies. And it's only during that time when she prays or prophesies. It's like, let me illustrate. And why I want to do this, you see, some people teach that as soon as a woman comes into the church door, she's supposed to have a head covering on. I don't think that's what it's teaching, but rather, it's more the idea that when you do something, you use something. Like, for instance, if I want to pick up something in, that is hot, 
I will put on a pair of gloves when I want to pick it up. Right? I won't put on the pair of gloves as soon as I walk into the door. I will pick up the gloves to pick up this hot thing when I want to pick it up. You understand? And that's what you have to see here. It's when this particular activity or these activities are done that the head covering is placed on. And only then, according to this passage. All right? Verses 5 and 6 says, But a woman dishonors her head, that's the man, if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head. That's her literal head. For this is the same as shaving her head. This simply says they are comparative. It doesn't mean now that the woman got to go shave her head if she does this. No, just say it's the same type of a thing. Because he goes on to argue the point. Yes, if she refuses to wear a head covering, she should cut off all her hair. Because it's the same thing. But since it is shameful for a woman to have her hair cut off, a head shaved, she should wear a covering. Now when you go to the Old Testament, you'll find that there were some cases where women's heads were shaved when certain things were done that they shouldn't do. All right? And some, some feel that maybe they are going back to that. And that's quite possible. That's quite possible. But he's simply saying here that for a woman not to have a covering on her head when she prays or prophesies, is just like being shamed when your hair is cut. So the point is on the shame. What makes the shame? The shaving makes the shame. Not wearing a head covering is a shame. It's the same kind of shame. That's what he's saying. Number three. The woman is created to reflect the glory of the man by acknowledging his authoritative role by wearing a head covering when praying or prophesying. Verse 7. Women reflects, a woman reflects man's glory. This is very important. Even from creation, a woman was created to reflect that man's glory. That means his honor, to show his honor and so on. Number four. Man's priority in the creation order he was created first. Verse 8 says, For the first man didn't come from um, woman. The first, I left out the word woman. For the first man didn't come from the woman. He's trying to say here that the man was, was, uh, he, he was first to be created, not the woman. Then he goes on. The woman's secondary position in the creation she came from man, but the first woman came from man. He's just trying to demonstrate that the order, the priority of the creation of the man demonstrates that the woman is created to honor him and not vice versa. All right? Now again, whether we understand it or not, or the reason for it, that's what the text says. All right? Number six. The purpose of the woman's creation. Why was she created? She was made for the sake of man. Verse 9. And man was not made for woman. But woman was made for man. Now is that in your Bible? It's not only in mine, right? How many ladies got the same thing in the Bible? 
All right. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you. I got it. Once you got it. It's in a word, right? Man was not made for woman, but woman was made for man. This is important for Paul's argument that the woman was made as the glory of man, meaning that she was to honor him, all right, and not vice versa. Also, she's to put on a head covering because of the angels. Now, whether you know which angels or why, it doesn't matter. The reason is still there. You are, as a woman, according to this passage, to wear a head covering when you pray or prophesy because of the angels. That has nothing to do with custom. That has nothing to do with mores. That has nothing to do with any kinds of social custom. This has to do with the theological reason here. Because of the angels. Number eight. Another reason is the teaching of nature. And this is an area that a lot of people have a problem with. The teaching of nature concerning the length of hair on men and women. This is, this is um, uh, Priscilla's problem. Now, not only Priscilla, mine. I don't want to pick on Priscilla. But it's many women's problems, this length, and also nature. But listen to the text. Judge for yourselves. Now, see, he's appealing now not to theology directly. He's appealing to common sense and what we feel to be right. The certain thing is just feel right. You see? Now, as I mentioned before, I don't mind who you are, even in today's world. If you see a man walking down the street with long hair down to his back, you just look, you're going to look at him two or three times. Why? Because it just isn't the norm. You see? Notice what he says. Judge for yourselves. Is it right for a woman to pray to God in public without covering her head? Isn't it obvious that it's disgraceful for a man to have long hair? See? Isn't it obvious? And isn't long hair a woman's pride and joy? For it has been given to her as a covering. Now notice, it's been given to her. She has this. God gave it to her. But she needs another covering. And there are two different Greek words. This covering that was given to her is a different Greek word for the covering she needs to put on her head. So you cannot say that the hair is the covering that is required. All right? Number nine. The universal teaching of the apostles. They all taught the same truth about this matter. All the apostles taught this very same thing. Women had to wear a head covering when they prayed or prophesied. Verse 16a. Look in your Bibles. But if anyone wants to argue about this, I simply say we have no other custom than this. The we here has to do with the apostles. So it is an apostolic uh, agreement if you want. They preach the same thing. A woman who prays or prophesies in the gathering of God's people for edification must cover her head when she does it. Not only is it apostolic, uh, but he makes something else. He says, the universal practice of the churches. All women wore a head covering when they prayed or prophesied. Notice what he says. And neither do God's other churches. 
So what he's saying here, and by the way, to me, this is the crushing blow for those who say it's only culture. Because Paul is saying, no matter where the church is, this same teaching is taught. Not only in this Greek culture, not only in this Jewish culture, but wherever the church is found, the apostles teach the same truth. As far as I'm concerned, these, these two verses here destroy any argument about culture. Because he says, wherever the church is found, didn't that say it? Look at it. Does it or doesn't it? Does it or doesn't it? Look at the text. It does. All right. So to me, those are 10 theological reasons why the church, why the women should pray or prophesy with their heads covered. 10. They're all theological. They have nothing to do with culture. And as I said, if it has to do with culture, then these reasons have no profit. We don't even have to talk about them anymore. They have no weight whatsoever if the culture destroys them. Do you understand what I'm saying? These are what I call observational insights. As you go through the text and you take it for what it says, you get some truths come out. First, the teaching of man's headship is based on theological truth and therefore it is supracultural. What do we mean by the word supracultural? Pardon? That's right, it goes beyond culture. And those verses that I just told you shows that. It goes beyond culture. It isn't just for Corinth. It isn't just for Greece. It isn't just for Africa. It's for the Bahamas as well. Those what we call eternal truths, universal truths, all right? And here are some of the things that, here are some of the theological truths in the passage. First, in verse 3, is the order of authority within the Trinity. Because it started with God and Christ. There is order. Now, it doesn't mean that there is different in essence because there's different in function. It simply means that the function is different, not the essence. Somebody goes from here to teach that Paul teaches that a, a man is better than a woman. That a woman is inferior to man. That's not what he's saying here. He isn't talking about essence, nature. He's talking about function or role. All right. In the Trinity, they have the same essence, the same nature, but they have different function. It is what they call the, the economic Trinity. All right. In other words, it's what they have to do. They're different roles to different functions. The same thing is true in the home. The man and the woman are equal before God as far as their essence, their nature is concerned, but their function is different. A man can never be a biological mother. True or false? True or false? That's what he's trying to maintain in 1 Corinthians 11, the distinction between the sexes. And that is lost many times because we only focus on the head. But something else here. The male is created in God's image to reflect his authoritative glory. We looked at that in verse 7. It is the male who reflects the authoritative glory of God, not the woman. It doesn't mean that the woman isn't created in the image of God. It simply means that she does not reflect his authority. 
the man does. That's the point. All right? Woman was created to reflect the authoritative glory of man. Now, you see a parallel here. The woman was created to reflect the authoritative glory of man. That's why the text says she was created for the glory of man. She shows his authority. When she prays or prophesies with a head covered, the same way the man shows the authority of Christ when he does not cover his head. The same principle is applied. Creation order which shows man's priority. But something else. This theological truth is to be applied by men and women while praying or prophesying through their proper head covering. This truth concerning the glory, the authoritative glory of Jesus Christ, the authoritative glory of the man. The man demonstrates the authority, authoritative glory of Christ by praying and prophesying without a head covering. The woman shows the authoritative authority of the man by praying with her head covered. You see, same principle. Men must have short hair and not wear head covering. Now again, how short is short? I can't tell you. I wish I could. I'd be walking around a rule imaginary male's head when they walk in here. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. It's just a principle. It's supposed to be short. Shorter than what? Shorter than the next man? Shorter than the woman's hair. All right? Now, again, this is speaking generally. All kinds of reasons why some women have short hair. All right? But the point is here, he's making a man's hair should never be longer than a woman's. Women must have long hair and wear a head covering. That's the emphasis here. Three. This directive is made permanent. That this directive is made permanent is seen by the fact that God has himself provided a natural covering for this theological truth to be evidenced. The woman's long hair. He uses it as an illustration. He uses a woman's long hair given to the woman by God as an illustration of why a head covering is necessary for a woman when she prays or prophesies. It's an illustration. And it's an illustration given by God. It would seem to me then that if the putting on of a head covering is not culturally accepted, now this is just a by thing. I keep taking this out and putting it back in. It would seem that if the putting on of a head covering is not culturally acceptable, then the woman who prays or prophesies should at least be sure that the covering she already has, her hair, should be long. Now, that's just an observation here. All right, let me move on for a minute here. The basis for the head covering rules for men and women while praying and prophesying are, and these right from the scripture, one, man's divinely appointed headship over the woman. That's the first reason. Secondly, God's created order of and purpose for man as male and woman as female. Man as male and woman as female, God's purpose for them. That has to do with creation. Third, three, maintaining the uniformity of apostolic teaching. And finally, maintaining the worldwide practice of the churches of God. That's 
These are the reasons why Paul gives the rules for man and woman. And by the way, it's not only a rule for a woman, it's a rule for men as well. And it all has to do with God's creative order. It all has to do with theology. Nothing here, nothing here has to do with culture. Now, it is important to notice that no reference whatsoever is made to social or cultural practices as the basis for the head covering rules. People automatically apply it, but there's no in scripture that says it. None. I'm of the opinion that Paul is teaching these people these truths for the first time. For the first time. And he actually is not following a culture, a culture, cultural practice already there. But actually, I believe he's instituting one. I believe he's instituting one rather than, uh, uh, rather than referring to one already there. All of the text seems to follow that. If you look at the text and not try to carry in ideas that you've gotten before. You see? The man is not commanded not to wear a head covering while praying or prophesying because of culture or custom, but because he's a man. That's why. Because he's a man. That's the reason why the rule was given. Same thing. The woman is not commanded to wear a head covering while praying or prophesying because of custom or culture, but rather because she's a woman. Male and female. Gender is being focused upon, not culture or custom. Got to see that. It's very important. The head covering rule has its basis then in the nature of man and male, man as male and woman as female, not in culture or custom. The only way you get custom and culture is if you put it in there. It is not in the text. This has to be seen as a divine mandate then from God rather than an accommodation to or reflection of a cultural practice which has not been established. None. No way at all. It is a divine command. The two other texts that are critical to our study of this passage, and that's 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2. 1 Corinthians 14, as, as Priscilla has indicated, seems to imply that a woman is not supposed to open her mouth in the church, which seems to contradict chapter 11. Isn't that right? Now, when you go to 1 Timothy 2, you've got the same thing. A woman is to be quiet and not teach a man, but to receive instruction with all submission. Isn't that right? Those passages seem to indicate that. And I say, that's not true. Again, it's sloppy Bible study. All right? Now, we're going to study these texts. Now, I was going to leave chapter 14 until I get to chapter 14. But to get to chapter 14, we've got to go through chapter 12. And boy, they got plenty of things in there. Because you got all the gifts. And then you got to go through chapter 13 when you're talking about love. And now that's a chapter. You're going to see a lot of misapplication for that as well. It's, it, to me, it's just, it, it's amazing how we distort the Word of God when we take it out of context. Take, for instance, 1 Corinthians 13. When you look at that chapter, what's the first thing you think about? You know, first, we know what chapter 13 deals with? Huh? Love. 
Most people think of what? Husband, wife, or Valentine's Day, or that kind of stuff. That passage really has no major focus on marriage at all. It's dealing with these same problems. That's what, and we'll see that. Paul makes it clear. Say, let me show you a better way. Now, I've given you some instruction, but let me show you an even better way. A better way for what? To putting things in order in the Corinthian church. What was it wrong in the Corinthian church? They had divisions, carrying people to court. You had uh, immorality. You had uh, uh, all kinds of chaos in the church. People came. Everybody wanted to raise a hymn. Everybody wanted to say a prayer. Everybody wanted to preach. He said, now, I can give you some laws, but let me show you a better way to handle all of this stuff. And it's 1 Corinthians 13. And you'll find that every description of love in that passage reflects on something that the Corinthians were doing. Everything. And Paul is simply saying, if you do this, that won't happen. If you do this, that won't happen. But we take it out of context. We don't apply it to the problem that Paul is dealing with. We take it and apply it to all other kinds of things. Now, I'm not saying that is wrong, all right? But it's certainly not the first application. All right. Now, I was going on to chapter 14, but that might take us another 15 minutes. I don't know if you want to go to 14 or wait for the next three months, and then we'll get into chapter 14, and we will answer all of these questions. And I'll show you in that passage that uh, uh, it's not only the woman who's supposed to shut up. And you're only supposed to shut up if they do something. The same thing with the man. All right? In chapter 14. So let me give you a Bible study. Go home and see if you could find the people in chapter 14 that Paul tells to be silent. Now, again, don't lose sight of what Paul is concerned about. He's concerned about two things. First, the glory of God. The glory of God in the church. Second, he's concerned about order. Chapter 14, he says... God is a God of what? God is a God of order. And that's what he's concerned in. And he's going to show that order in the church glorifies God. He's going to make a statement in there. Because remember now, when you go to 14, Paul says, now when you all come, everybody want to do something. Everybody want to pray. Everybody want to preach. Everybody want to give out a hymn. Everybody want to do it. And they all want to do it at the same time. Paul said, that's chaos. Now he says, to the people who are speaking in tongues, he says, now, you get up and you start talking in tongues and ain't nobody to interpret. You get an unsaved person walking there and they hear all of you all talking this language. Nobody could understand it. What is going to happen? He said, that unsaved person can think you're what? You think you're crazy. You see? But now he says, if an unsaved person comes in and everything is happening the way God has outlined it for the happen. You only speak one after the other, no, and not at the same time, uh, no more than three, and so on, and not without a, not without a interpreter. If you do those things, God will bring conviction upon that person and cause him to worship God. You see, he is concerned about God's being glorified through the order of the church. That's what he's dealing with. Well, I'll leave chapter 14 until I get to it. So in the meantime, you have, you'll have to wonder how we're going to reconcile 11 with 14.
But if you read 14, I don't think you'll have a problem. Just read it and study it and see if you can reconcile it.